0: this is the seventh and final talk in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path titled stage seven gnosis recorded august tenth, nineteen 1997 at the center for sacred sciences in eugene oregon
1: this is the last or final talk in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path And it is about the last or seventh stage, the stage of enlightenment or gnosis or liberation or union with God, uh, however it's called in whatever tradition. But as we shall see, really, it's not actually a stage. It's sort of the end of all stages. But for the sake of uh, a nice compact way of presenting this, we can think of it as the last stage. And it is impossible to accurately describe We can get some idea of it through analogies, through metaphors, and things like that. So this morning, I really want to concentrate on, rather than trying to describe what it is, and you'll have a chance at the end if you want to try to ask me more questions about that, I want to concentrate on what it isn't. And particularly two very common mistakes that are made today in our time, in our culture, The first mistake is that enlightenment is some sort of passing experience. And the second uh, is almost the opposite of that, and that is that enlightenment is some sort of static state that you arrive at. So let's begin with this first mistake, this first error. This view of enlightenment is that enlightenment is a peak experience, which may be... Uh, very exceptional, may have tremendous value for the individual, but is fundamentally or qualitatively not different from other sorts of experiences. Abraham Maslow, the anthropologist, defined this peak experience this way. He called it a transient self-actualization of the person. And briefly what this means in his terminology is that this is a An experience that passes, but an experience you have in which your higher potential becomes actualized. You see, you glimpse the possibilities. And then the experience passes. And as you get older, if you're maturing psychologically, you have more of these experiences. And this goes on and on throughout your lifetime. So you never actually arrive someplace, but just more and more of this potential is being actualized. So there really is no end to the spiritual path in this view. It just sort of deepens and becomes more profound. Uh, The whole process of spirituality is seen as a a, a kind of a growth, a growth towards wholeness, towards more joy, uh, more vitality in living, more love, uh, those sorts of things. But there's no inkling here that the fundamental sense of self can be transcended or can be ended. Carl Jung, who was another great psychologist of this century, who was very interested, by the way, in spiritual phenomena, took it seriously, one of the first psychologists to do so, made very good contributions to our understanding of the psyche in a spiritual sense and so forth. Nevertheless, always was stuck with this idea that somehow the self, we're talking about the ego self here, is fundamental and central and cannot be transcended, cannot dissolve, cannot, uh, life cannot be experienced without it. So in this passage, he's talking about enlightened people. Uh, he's talking about mystics and stuff that he studied. And he says, even the enlightened person remains what he is, and is never more than his own limited ego before the one who dwells within him, whose form has no knowable boundaries, who encompasses him on all sides, fathomless as the abyss of the earth and vast as the sky. This one he's talking about is his idea of the big self. But in his view of things, the individual self can make contact with this big self, can be open to it, so to speak, but as he just says, it always remains a limited, bounded entity in the face of this larger one. Now both Maslow and Jung were founders of the transpersonal psychology and the human potential movements that are around today, very popular, and this error that they both made, and it was basically the same error, Uh, has been transmitted, and you find this cropping up in transpersonal psychological theories and in the human potential movement, which is not to say that transpersonal psychology isn't valuable or the human potential movement isn't valuable, but it's just something to be aware of, and that's one place where you will spot this as a recurrent mistake made about the true nature of enlightenment. In point of fact, from mystics' point of view, the spiritual path involves something far more radical than a simple psychological maturing process. All paths, as described in all traditions, do involve some psychological maturing. And in all traditions, they have remedial practices that will address severe distortions, what we would today call neuroses. So, for instance, just to give one example, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, they have practices that you can do if you are someone who has a a really neurotic uh, temper, Uh, if you're someone who flies off the handle all the time and is very violent and and can't control their anger and so forth, they have practices where you meditate on the Buddha of compassion and you identify with the Buddha of compassion and you start manifesting those qualities and it's a, a remedial device to straighten out that particular distortion. So it's not that uh, that there isn't a psychological process involved in a spiritual path. And I think modern psychology has several contributions to make. One of the most important, I think, is this whole idea of repression, which is not at least explicitly described in the traditions that I'm aware of. It's very important because we do have sometimes blocks, complexes, neuroses, and so forth, that we are not aware of consciously with a small c. And if we're not aware of them, we can't deal with them. Often the the sign of this is a certain numbness in our emotional makeup. And because nothing's there, there's nothing to confront, to examine, to investigate, to transform. So I think in one area that modern psychology has been very helpful is to point this out and also give us um, ways of bringing these things into awareness so they can be dealt with. But enlightenment or gnosis or self-realization is a far more radical uh, moment than just a peak experience. It is a permanent end to the experience of the separation between this ego and this one, in Carl Jung's terms, or between the I and other, self and world, subject and object. And it is an end to all the suffering that that experience automatically entails. So let's try to look into this a little bit more detail. What does this mean, that it's an end to this experience of self and world, I and other. Enlightenment reveals that all distinctions are imaginary. All distinctions are imaginary. Here's how the great Hindu sage Shankar described it. He says, you, I, this, such ideas of separateness originate in the impurity of mind. But when the vision of the Atman, the Supreme, the Absolute, the one without a second, shines forth in Samadhi, then all sense of separateness vanishes, because the reality has been firmly apprehended. Does everybody follow that? These distinctions we make, you, I, this, and so forth, he says, they originate from the impurity of the mind. They aren't real. They are created by the mind. And what Gnosis, what enlightenment, what he calls the vision of the Atman here, is the apprehension of the reality, the true nature of all this experience, which is not truly divided up and distinguished into separate objects. I said last time we used this example of uh, the waves and the ocean, that our minds can distinguish waves from ocean, but in reality, fundamentally, they are not distinguishable. And the same thing applies to all the distinctions we make, even the most fundamental sorts of distinctions. And this is something that you can investigate and should investigate on your spiritual path for yourself. For instance, the distinction between sound and silence. Does everybody hear the car? Where is the line, the boundary, where that sound is no longer there and then there's silence? This is something to investigate through your own experience. We're talking about things that uh, appear to your own senses. Objects in space. Can I separate out this clock from the space in which it stands? Can I ever have a clock without space? what would that be? Space is something in our culture, particularly, we either totally ignore or we want to make the maximum use of it. Efficient. Mm -hmm. Go look at some of the great Chinese and Japanese uh, visual arts where space has an aesthetic value, a spiritual value, in fact that we have no appreciation of in this culture. The whole point of Chinese visual art, those landscapes, those misty Mm -hmm. landscapes, with the overhanging trees and so forth, is how everything emerges out of space and is inseparable from space and returns to space as a metaphor for the ultimate, the Tao, the void. Past, present, and future. On an earlier talk, I think we talked about this during uh, one of the question-and-answer periods. I think you you brought it up at one point. Where is the line that separates the present from the past or the present from the future? Can we ever find it? One of the reasons to learn to meditate and to learn to uh, have a sharp, undistracted mind is so you can go investigate just these kinds of questions. And then other, perhaps more charged kinds of distinctions, like the distinction between life and death. What Shankar is saying here is there is ultimately no distinction between life and death. This distinction that upsets us so much, that causes so much suffering, that we take as being so uh, fundamental, truly doesn't exist. In many traditions, this Revelation of inseparability is described through use of an analogy or metaphor. In the great Upanishads, they talk about it's like the rivers running into the sea and you can't tell the difference. That's from the great Hindu classic. Listen to Teresa Mavila. Here's what she says. Here it is like rain falling from the heavens into a river or a spring. There is nothing but water here and it is impossible to divide or separate the water belonging to the river from that which fell from the heavens. Same analogy, same metaphor, you see. It's not that she's copying and plagiarizing something she read. She's struggling to describe this. It's a common phenomenon we're all aware of, and so this is what comes to mind, a way to try to express this. This revelation that all distinctions are imaginary applies particularly to the distinction between, as I said, the subject and the object, the self and world. Because after all, this is the crux of where our suffering comes from. For us, it's not so important whether there's a true distinction between sound and silence. That's sort of an interesting experiential phenomenon, or maybe scientific phenomenon, or whatever. But when it comes down to our experience of the world, then it becomes very uh, crucial to us. Here's what Huang Po, a great Chinese Buddhist teacher, said. And he calls Buddha nature Bodhi. Bodhi, pure mind, which is the source of everything, is absolutely without distinctions, there being no such entities as selfness and otherness. See, isn't he saying the same thing that Shankar just said? You, I, this, these are all imaginary. They don't truly exist. One Hindu, one Buddhist. Ananda Moyamaya, a contemporary Hindu mystic, uh, writes about Atman Darshana, the vision of Atman. That's the technical term of it, the Sanskrit term. She says, what does Atman Darshana, the direct perception of that, mean? Seer, seeing, seeing, where these three are realized as modifications created by the mind, superimposed on the one all-pervading consciousness. So she's saying the same thing here. This division between seer, seeing, and seeing. What we were talking about a little earlier, this phenomenological idea. The idea that there's a subject, there is some sort of seeing, some sort of perception, and there's an object which entails uh, two distinctions here, dividing three things. This is something created by the mind, imaginary, literally, and superimposed on what? What she calls all-pervading consciousness. Isn't this the same thing as what Wang Po was talking about when he says Bodhi is pure mind, all-pervading consciousness? Here's how the Christian mystic, Rosie Brook, describes it. What we are, that we behold, and what we behold, that we are. For in this pure vision, we are one life and one spirit with God. That's beautiful. Here we have Hindus, Buddhists, Christians. Some people think there's some sort of, uh, another great error, some sort of major difference between the mysticism of the East and the West. There isn't. Different terminology, but no essential difference. Read carefully. Let's look at this, because this is a, a beautifully uh, put. What we are that we behold, and what we behold that we are. Now, again, this is not a conclusion of logic or philosophy. This is, as Ananda Moimai talks about, this is a result of direct perception. Hold up your hand. Just hold up your hand. Look at your hand. Now you're beholding your hand, you see? Sometimes we read things like this, what we are, that we behold, and what we behold, that we are, and we think, how beautiful that sounds. We never bother to try to see what this actually might mean. So, that's what you're beholding, your hand, right? Right? Now, in our culture, and this varies, by the way, from culture to culture slightly, we would say, yes, actually, in some sense, we are what we are beholding when we're beholding our hand. That is us, part of us anyway, right? Right? So we get some idea of how this could be true, that what we behold, that is what we are. But now, don't, don't lower your hand now. We're going to continue this experiment. Boy, you know, experiments take time. You can't just rush through them. Now, let your gaze go past your hand and fall on some object, like uh, I'm looking at the crossbars of the window over there. Maybe some of you are seeing the fireplace, or the wall, or that mirror, or some of the objects on the mantelpiece. Now, look at that, whatever it is, that object. Is that what you are? Well, you see what Rosie Brook's saying. What we behold, that we are. You're looking at yourself. If you're looking at the wall, you're looking at yourself just as truly as you are when you look at your hand. If you're looking at the what's up there, those flowers up there, you're looking at yourself. If you're looking at the floor, you're looking at yourself. It's not just beautiful things like flowers and trees. If you look at a pile of uh, doggy doo-doo, you're looking at yourself. (laughs) If you look down the outhouse toilet, that some of our retreatants do when they go on retreat to see if they can see the Buddha at the bottom of an outhouse toilet, (laughs) it's a very good practice. Don't laugh. Very few people ever think to do that. They hear all this talk about, you know, the Buddha's a pile of dung in the courtyard, but they never go bother to look to see if that's true. That, but you're looking at yourself. This is not a bit of poetry here, what we behold that we are. This has a literal meaning for mystic. It's a question of direct perception. Gnosis puts an end to this experience of being a separate self. This is vital. This is what Carl Jung didn't get. Lali Shwari does this beautifully. She was a 16th century Kashmir saint, I believe. I sometimes don't have a good memory for dates, but somewhere in there, give or take a couple centuries. <laughs> when the sun of knowledge rose, the dew of ignorance disappeared. When I realized my oneness with the name of God, my inness was obliterated and Lali found peace this sense of I was obliterated, this fundamental sense of being some sort of separate entity in a world. When the experience of self ends, automatically, and this is hard to understand, the experience of the world ends. The world as an objective self-existing thing out there. This is the part that really uh, mystifies people when they read mystics talk about this. Rumi, for instance, says, The pillar of this world, O beloved, is heedlessness. Wakefulness is this world's bane. Wakefulness comes from that world. When it prevails, this world is laid flat. Now, in his terminology, he's a Sufi, heedlessness is ignorance. It's not paying attention, being ignorant. Ignoring is what ignorance literally means, to ignore reality. Wakefulness is enlightenment. What Bodhi means, what Buddha means is someone who's awake, the awakened one, a very common metaphor in all traditions. So he's just talking here about ignorance and enlightenment. And he says, listen, the pillar of this world, what supports it is, is heedlessness, ignorance. This world, meaning the way we experience as an objective thing. When wakefulness comes, this world is laid flat. It vanishes. It disappears. This experience vanishes and disappears. Here's what Shankara exclaimed after his enlightenment. He says, where is this universe? Who took it away? Has it merged into something else? A while ago I beheld it. Now it exists no longer. This is wonderful indeed. (laughs) Yes, indeed, this is quite wonderful. Unbelievable, in fact, but true. Carl Jung read this stuff, but he didn't quite believe it. And he didn't go on his own path far enough to discover it. This universe is the universe of our normal dualistic experience. It vanishes. Now... There's even a twist to this because actually this universe never existed in the first place. It's not like something has actually vanished or changed. It's like a realizing that something you thought was real is not real. Will never be real but has also never been real. So, uh Long Shampa, great Tibetan Buddha says, In the ultimate meaning, there is no samsara and no one wanders in it. You know, Samsara is the Buddhist term for this world, this world of delusion, this world of experience of I and other and so forth. And so the whole Buddhist cosmology is built around this idea that we're stuck in samsara and then we'll leave samsara and we'll go to nirvana someplace and then uh, Bodhisattva's Spend their career helping people empty samsara, as they call it. And so, the the, sort of the cosmic task is to empty samsara of all these poor wandering beings. But what Longchenpa is saying, in the ultimate meeting, there's no samsara and no one was wandering in it. Interesting, huh? Now, when people read things like this, especially Westerners and especially scholars in the West, when they were first exposed to this, they thought this was awfully nihilistic. You know, that the whole idea was sort of to enter into some sort of literal void where nothing would arise. And, you know, that would be their idea of heaven. And it's not true. It's not that appearances disappear. They may for a moment, and very often, Gnosis dawns in that moment, in that samadhi, when literally there are no objects in consciousness. But it's not like they vanish and go away forever. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you today. The Buddha wouldn't have talked to anybody. Shankara wouldn't have talked to anybody. You know. But this isn't the case. So obviously that's not what they're talking about. Here's how another Tibetan Buddhist describes it. This is Dilgo Gense Rinpoche. Bodhisattvas are never fooled by appearances, just as a magician is never fooled by his own tricks, for they know that appearances have no true existence, and they know that failing to recognize that fact is delusion. It's not that appearances never arise again, but they are no longer apprehended as a world, as an objective existing mass of phenomena that sort of is out there in its own right. It could be, in any sense, divorced or separated from this pervasive consciousness, as Ananda Moyamai calls it, or this pure mind, as Wang Po calls it, or God in the mystics' idea of God in both Christianity and uh, Kabbalism and, and Sufism. So delusion here is not that there are appearances, it's a misperception of the nature of the appearances. There's a very important difference here. Does everybody get that? Uh, Todd here is a magician. And one of our retreats, I had Todd bring along his bag of tricks, and he did a bunch of tricks for us. Some of them were quite startling. And one in which he made a cup rise and float around the air. Who was on that retreat? Does anybody remember that? Wasn't it? Wasn't that good? <laughs> I don't think anybody really believed that Todd was doing this. The optical illusion was fabulous, but, you know, we're sophisticated, scientific, materialist-minded people. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine how, in a, another culture, Todd could pack his bag of tricks and go off someplace and actually fool people. And they would think he's a great magician with great powers. And they'd pay them a lot of money and, I don't know, bring sick people in to be healed or whatever. Do you know what I mean?
0: I tried that. It didn't
1: work. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> you also need things like greed, and you need to be able to lie successfully. Uh, some of those sterling qualities I think you are, are dim- have diminished capacity at. I try to work yeah. <laughs> In any case, God would never be fooled. Do you see what I mean? So here he could create an illusionary world for people. He might even start developing a cosmology to explain how this works, you know? Like he's working with, I don't know, energy that are such high frequencies, you see, that they can't be detected by normal scientific devices and so forth, right? (sighs) I think, Then take that back. If you did it right, you could find people in this culture who pay you. (laughs) He's never fooled, right? It's not that he himself doesn't see what's going on. It's not that something visually has changed, but he knows the trick, so to speak. So one of the things about enlightenment realization is to see the cosmic trick and then never be fooled by it again. Enlightenment, finally, then, is not any sort of experience, whether a peak experience or whatever sort of experience, that passes away with time. It is possible, as I've said before, to have what I call a Gnostic flash, a a sort of a glimpse. You don't get the full realization of what you're seeing, but you do have a a, a glimpse of what the Gnostics are talking about. very important on a spiritual path, and that can pass away. But the way I use Gnosis, enlightenment, full self-realization, is not anything that passes away. Here's how Nargajuna, one of the great Buddhist philosophers, describes what he calls prajna, his term for gnosis. With the realization of the excellent taste of this prajna, one realizes a permanent fulfillment of the heart, and there is no more hankering left. So there's been a radical and permanent break with this world of delusion. Meister Eckhart, great Christian mystic, says the same thing. Now notice, but it's in Christian terms. He says, When the kingdom appears to the soul and it is recognized, there is no further need for preaching or instruction. It has learned enough and has at once secured eternal life. He's, he's saying the same thing, except he's putting it in terms of internal life and the kingdom of God and so forth. Lalishwari says, when at last I found him, I saw that he was not different from me. Then my heart became full, my seeking ended, and my understanding was complete. Now, notice, she says almost exactly what these other two have said. First of all, she says, then my heart became full. Nargajuna says, one realizes a permanent fulfillment of the heart. She says, my understanding was complete. Meister says, there's no need for preaching or instruction right? She adds one line here, though, that is one of my favorite ways of describing enlightenment. My seeking ended. My seeking ended. And I think this is one of the best ways to describe enlightenment. It's not that you gain something new, it's that something comes to an end. And I've often tried to describe this in terms of my own life. And this morning when I was going over these notes, and I was trying to remember the past. Sometimes it's very hard for me to sort of put myself back in there or, or dredge this up. But I made a concerted effort this morning. And I remembered when I was a late teenager in my early 20s, I wanted to be a writer. I'd read Hemingway and Fitzgerald and people like that and Kerouac and all that. And I desperately wanted to be a writer. And I had a little guest house I was running behind the house. And I worked at a department store. And in the evening, I'd come home and I had this old manual typewriter. And in those days, that's all you had. So that's how old I am. And I pound away in my uh, manual typewriter, you know, and I wasn't really a very good uh, writer. But I had this image of myself. And I thought, Sunday I'm going to be a famous writer. And then I'm going to be happy. So this is seeking Later, when I was in Vietnam, it was a different sort of seeking. This seeking wasn't so much about a vision of what I was going to do when it was over. It just, if only I could get out of here, I'm going to be happy. I don't care where I go. Just out of here, and then I will be happy. I did get out of Vietnam. For a while, I was quite happy. It didn't last. Nothing permanent about it when I was a revolutionary. Oh, when we win the revolution, then I'll be happy. Well, we didn't didn't even get the first place. (laughs) (laughs) When I went to Hollywood, you know, it's like hunger. I'd read the trade papers, the papers to describe who's doing what in terms of projects, producers, and directors. And then there'd always be the gossip column. There pictures of these parties, snapshots of people, at openings, theater openings, or restaurant openings and stuff. And I just, when I'm with that crowd, when I'm successful and rich, then I'll be happy. This is what I mean by seeking. Now, not only do we have this writ large in our lives in terms of big themes that dominate periods of our life, like these did in those periods of my life, But we have it in each day. Just watch yourself. Maybe uh, uh, you're planning a vacation. We're going up to Portland for a few days later in the month. Then we're going to eat out some nice restaurants. Oh, that'll make me happy. Yes, we'll go back to that Italian restaurant we went to last year, and then I'll be happy. Even when you uh, wake up in the morning and you survey your day, And maybe you have some unpleasant chores to do in the morning, some errands to run out, some people to see that you're not looking forward to. But maybe for lunch you're going to have lunch with a friend of yours at the French horn where you love the espresso coffee, right? So in the morning you're thinking, oh, well, I'll just get through the morning and then I'll be happy when I get here to the French horn with my espresso coffee, right? Even down to momentary things where you're brushing your teeth, And if you don't like to brush your teeth, you say, well, just as soon as I finish brushing my teeth, I'll be happy again. Watch how that seeking works in your life. How it permeates every moment, this grasping, this seeking. In the next moment, I'm going to be happy. If only I weren't here, if only I were there, if only I didn't have this, but I did have that. Constantly driving our lives, at least it did mine. So much so that it seemed... I mean, perfectly natural. There didn't seem anything wrong with it. It was unthinkable that you could live in any other way. That seeking comes to an end. There's no more a quest for happiness. Why? Because you are happy. You are that consciousness that is always happy. It's already there. By the way, it's already there for all of you right now. Nothing to be attained, just something to be realized. Just something to be recognized, as Meister Eckhart says. Boom, that's all, just recognized. Part of that recognition is, well, you're already happy. Why would you go seek happiness? That doesn't mean that there isn't seeking in terms of, I seek knowledge, relative knowledge, in order to improve my teachings. I go read books. I go look things up. I seek relative knowledge about cooking in order to cook for Jennifer and I. So I'll go look up a recipe and try to get it right and all that. But it's not for the idea of becoming happy. A better way to express it is to express happiness. And we all, again, know moments like this. We just don't recognize what's going on. I don't think there's anybody here who hasn't at some time just been happy and burst out singing just because they were happy or got up and just started dancing because they were happy. And if you said, why are you doing it? You wouldn't say, I'm doing it in order to become happy. You'd say, well, I'm just happy. That's why I'm doing it. You see the the difference here? Gnosis is not a self-actualization, in any sense of the word. It sounds a little bit like this self-realization that the Hindus use. Atman is the word in Hinduism, which is translated into English as self. This is self with a capital S. It's not ego self. It's self that is that Brahman, that pure consciousness. And self-realization, to realize that you are that self, not that little limited ego that Carl Jung described in the presence of this one. But in fact, that is precisely uh, what self-realization is. Oh, I'm not this, which is just a personality pattern. I am that that one, that he said, well, that you could never jump this boundary. That is self-realization. It has nothing to do with the actualization of some limited ego personality. Really, you could say Gnosis is the destruction of that ego self, or to be more precise, the destruction of the delusion of that self. Again, it's not like there was any self there to begin with that actually gets destroyed. It's the destruction of the misperception. It's the destruction of the delusion that Todd can make glasses rise in the air. There's nothing there to actually be destroyed. You see, it's something you've superimposed on the situation. You've read it a certain way. You've assumed something about it. And you've built a whole story in your mind about Todd doing this. And once you know the trick, you see exactly what you saw before. So what's destroyed is your delusion, your ignorance, your misperception. Does everybody see what I'm talking about here? This is why Rumi says, The madman's star has been eclipsed. He has fled from my commotion. I have mixed with death. I have flown into non-existence. I have been delivered from this ego and self-will. Oh, alive or dead, what an affliction. Ego and self-will. The madman star has been eclipsed. We're all nuts under delusion. That star has been eclipsed. He has fled from my commotion. This, this deluded being, this self, is gone. I have mixed with death, spiritual death, mystical death. I have flown into non-existence. This being that seemed to be there is poof, just like Shankara said about the world. Poof, where'd it go? I have been delivered from this ego and self-will. Very precisely. Okay. The second and opposite error is that enlightenment is some sort of static state. And we imagine the Buddha, or we see pictures actually of the Buddha sitting up there, and he's far removed from the sufferings of the world. You know, he's maybe on top of Mount Muru and everything. And the suffering beings are, are calling to the Buddha to help them liberate them from samsara, drag them out, and he's in the samadhi, but just he wavers it a little bit, just enough to get a few words out of his mouth, you know, out of compassion to help people. But he's basically in the samadhi. This is a totally misguided image about what enlightenment is about. And if you hold on to this image, you are definitely going to be disappointed when you meet in-flesh teachers because none of them will live up to this image. Certain teachers do try to live the image, the archetype of their culture. And this is a concession to people's delusion. But if you look at the personalities of mystics from all over the world, you see they're wildly different. Ramana Maharshi lived like a renunciate. He had like you know one loincloth and stuff like that. He actually, when you dig into his life a little bit more, you realize not quite like that. He also read the morning newspaper. He liked to read the newspaper. <laughs> Jesus was a party animal, you know? He,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's in the Gospels. He goes around partying. He, he turns water into wine at weddings. He hangs out with uh, hookers and thieves and in bars and brothels. And uh, he eats meat, and he drank an awful lot, apparently, because three times in the Gospels, people come and complain. And twice the disciples of John, who was more like uh, Romanum Harshi, renunciate. He lived off by the River Jordan, and he ate thistles and things. And they came, and they said, our guy, he's a renunciate. He lives, you know, like a holy life. Your guy is, you know, slurping up the meat and slurping down the wine. What's going on? And Jesus doesn't deny it. I don't eat any meat or wine. He says, no, no. He says, he says, wisdom justifies all her children. He says, you know, John comes, and he doesn't eat any meat or drink any wine. He lives out there, and you think he has a demon, meaning he's cuckoo, you know, in their lingo. You think he's crazy. He says, I come, and I eat meat, and I drink a lot of wine, and you call me a, a glutton and a, a drunkard. But, you know, wisdom justifies all her children. So here are two totally different personalities, expressions of this neither of them are in some sort of static state and it's our impression that enlightenment must be one way and we go around with this image and then of course the people we meet don't fit the image so maybe they do it first, oh well, they finally found our teacher and then we find out gee you know the teachers has fixed their ears, you ever see the Dalai Lama you know, <laughs> you can't be enlightened and we go looking for somebody else so it's very important to to recognize this. This idea of, this, particularly this image of the Buddha up there, dispensing wisdom in some sort of static state, is really the ego's dream, what the ego would like enlightenment to be. The ego dreams of someday becoming invulnerable. The ego is going to be God. The ego is going to be invulnerable to pain. Physical pain, I mean, you can you can stab body, the ego won't feel it at all. Emotional pain, certainly. Oh God, if only you get rid of this emotional pain. So you're up there and no emotions at all arise. And you're not even swayed by the pain of the world. So you know, people can drop dead in front of you, murder each other, babies can be burned in front of you, and you're in your samadhi. <laughs> this is what the ego would like. One of the reasons that we mistake enlightenment for a static state is that certain meditation practices aim at attaining certain states. So one of the first things you do if you're a Buddhist, for instance, you start a meditation practice, you try to learn to attain what's called calm abiding. It's a state where the mind is single pointed and is not distracted. That is a particular state. And once you get into that state, then you can use that serviceable mind to go investigate things like, you know, where's the distinction between the past and the present and the future, something like that. But that's not a permanent state. That state will pass. All states are impermanent. All things are impermanent, even very subtle things like states. They all pass. Even though it may seem like they're around for a long time. If you go down to Southern California and you arrive there in June and you look up at the sky, ooh, there's blue, sunny skies, and through June and through July, and you think, well, this is it, I've arrived. But it'll pass. The weather changes. The rains come. The sky in the wintertime gets lead and gray, just sits there for months and months. Every state changes and passes. So... This description of certain states, which are valued on a spiritual path, valued because in those states there's opportunity to have a kind of insight you can't normally have, are themselves temporary, are themselves relatively useful. And we make this mistake of saying, oh, well, then a spiritual path must be aiming for some sort of permanent state. So, for instance, in Tibetan Buddhism itself, where they talk about the first thing to do is attain the state of calm abiding, they describe enlightenment as abiding and non-abiding. Abiding and non-abiding, what does that mean? It's a teaching precisely to knock out this idea that there's any place to go to abide, any nirvana to abide and anywhere to abide. Listen to Ibn Arabi, great Sufi. He says, the people of perfection have realized all stations and states and passed beyond these, so they have no attribute and no description. The root of this knowledge of Allah is the station reached ultimately by the Gnostics, that is, no station. Mm. Sufi, Muslim, Tibetan, Rinpoche, what is say? Abiding and non-abiding. The station of no station. Here's St. John of the Cross, Christian mystic. Turning from one's own mode implies entry into what has no mode. That is God. People who reach this state no longer have any modes or methods of their own. Abiding and non-abiding. Station of no station. It's not that Thoughts no longer rise, emotions no longer arise, feelings no longer rise. It's just like uh, appearances arise in what we used to call the objective outer world. Appearances also arise in the inner world. In fact, this is one of the things, there's no difference anymore. Emotions arise, thoughts arise. Even for Ramana Maharshi, they tried to feed him a little bit more melon when he was sick at one point than the rest of the people. He got quite irritated everybody. He said, if you're going to give me an extra piece of melon, you have to give everybody an extra piece of melon. He got very cross with everybody. Well, they were surprised to so see he got angry. It's not that these things don't arise, but they're no longer identified as belonging to some I. Here's how the great Taoist says, Chong Su, writes about the perfect sage. His mind is content with being in whatever situation it happens to be. Sometimes he's coldly relentless like autumn. Sometimes he's warmly amiable like spring. Joy and anger come and go as naturally as the four seasons do in nature. Keeping perfect harmony with all things, which endlessly go on being transmuted into one another, he does not know any limit. The difference is, from my experience anyway, there were certain emotions I didn't like. Certain states I didn't like, certain thoughts I didn't like, those were bad. And then there were certain that I did like, and those were good. And a lot of my life was trying to either ignore, repress, get rid of, change, uh, or just wait out the bad things. And to cultivate, to enhance, to hold on to, to prolong the good things. It can't be done, fortunately, fortunately. Because if you could do it, it would just be like listening to a piece of music. And in a piece of music, there's usually one or two refrains that you particularly like. You know, oh, wait until it comes. I'll be happy when that refrain comes. Oh, there it is. And then if you could just hold that refrain. La, 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 la. (laughs) And then we'll just repeat it. La, 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 la. Oh, see, I even changed it. I shouldn't have. "Uh, uh, uh, La, 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 la. And just keep doing that over and over and over again. Even if you could hang on to one state, one emotional state, one emotional tone and just keep it going, what would happen? You'd go nuts. You would. It would drive you crazy. This is why his mind is content with being in whatever situation happens to be in. Some days you're sad, some days you're happier. This is, you know, just like the weather. A common analogy to describe this non-abiding, non-dwelling, non-clinging is that image of a vessel or a cup. And you find this in all traditions. Here's what Catherine of Siena, a great Christian mystic, says. She says, carry your heart like a vessel, emptied of every desire and disorderly earthly love. Now, you hear that, and then right away the mind thinks, well, maybe this is like this static state. See, I'll just become totally empty. But, she goes on to say, but no sooner is your vessel empty than it is filled, for nothing can remain empty. If it is not full of something material, it will fill up with air, just so the heart is a vessel that cannot remain empty. So, what you're emptying it of is self. But it's not empty like then it's just going to stay empty forever. You're emptying it of self so that In Christian parlance, God can fill it. And God doesn't just sit there. God's got a lot of things to do. A lot of things to manifest. In the Quran, there's a verse that says, each day he is upon some task. Every day, God is busy at work, you know? He doesn't fool around. He just keeps on, whether you like it or not. Ibn Arabi makes use of this Quranic verse And use of this image of the vessel, the cup, when he says, The goblet of love is the lover's heart, for the heart fluctuates from state to state, just as God, who is the beloved, is each day upon some task. So the lover undergoes constant variation in the object of his love, in keeping with the constant variation of the beloved in his acts. The lover is like the clear and pure glass goblet which undergoes constant variation of the liquid within it. The color of the lover is the color of the beloved. Isn't that beautiful? You see? It's like becoming this clear glass goblet that has no characteristics of its own but not for the purpose of just sitting there, not being used. But this one, you empty it so that what? The wine of God can be poured in, and the wine is constantly changing. It's constantly fluctuating. It's constantly varying, you know. Some days God likes to drink, you know, little pink rosés. Some days he likes those heavy, dark Merlots. Some days he likes those oaky Chardonnays. The wine is constantly shifting, changing here. Why do you think nothing ever repeats itself? You notice that? Nothing ever repeats itself exactly. Once God's done something, that's it. God's an artist and never looks back. A dancer never repeats a gesture. And one of our problems is, you know, we kept saying, no, no, hold, wait, wait, stop, you know. Or, or let's go ahead, let's go ahead. We don't get in tune with the dance. Consciousness is always manifesting all its inherent possibilities. That's what this world is from a mystic's point of view. That's all it is. It's just one great big work of art. It doesn't have any more purpose beyond that. Once we start looking at our own delusion and our suffering, we can start to talk about purposes. It's manifesting in order to awaken you up. Because just like any artist, consciousness uh, wants an audience. You are the audience. You are the way consciousness sees itself and its possibilities. And it wants an alert audience. It wants a not just a... You know, a dumb audience It wants a sensitive audience who's alert to everything. I mean, I'm making an analogy here. So we can say, consciousness wants to wake you up. So God is always reaching out to you. But from the ultimate point of view, it's just a dance. For the love of it, for the joy of it. Because consciousness is already happy. The trouble is, when emotions arise, they are not your emotions. When thoughts arise, they are not your thoughts. When moods arise, they are not your moods. They are all the wine of God being poured into this cup. And this is, our problem comes from, not the fact that our emotions, thoughts, moods there, but we don't recognize. We don't see the kingdom. We don't recognize it for what it is. Ibn Arabi goes on to expand this analogy, and in his terminology, every person, everything, is a location for a divine self-disclosure. So each of us are a location for a divine self-disclosure. Notice we're not any entity thing. It's just a location. This clock is a location for a divine self disclosure This is God disclosing one of God's possibilities in this clock. And the clock is only a place where this is happening. Everybody following this bit of terminology here? So he says the wine is precisely what becomes actualized in the cup. And we have explained that the cup is identical with the locus of manifestation. The wine is identical with what is manifested in it. You understand what he's talking about here? Now, this analogy breaks down at a certain point. This analogy is still in terms of duality. There's a cup and there's the wine that's poured into it and so forth if you really want to extend your mind beyond the thought process, which you should always do on a spiritual path, take that image and just realize there's no cup. There is no cup. There is no self. It's only the wine. So... Enlightenment is not some passing experience, a wonderful peak experience of self-actualization or anything like that. It's not a static state that you finally arrive someplace and there you are, and now you're immune from all the toils and troubles of the world. So what is it? Well, as I start out the talk by saying, it's almost impossible to say what it is in other talks we've talked about and touched on here things like realizing some truth putting an end to ignorance putting an end to seeking but really what's it like to be enlightened this is a question i used to ask on my path all the time and i used to imagine all sorts of things one of them was everything would become transparent you're like a scrim on the stage it's a Curtain that, depending on the lighting, you can see through it or not, and the lights would shift, and behind that would see the Platonic archetypes of forms of things. That's what I used to think. Mm-hmm. What's it like? Well, I'm going to give you a demonstration. Everybody ready? Are you got enlightened? I'm always hopeful. <laughs> Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. I just gave you a, a version of a very ancient teaching. Buddha gave this first 2,500 years ago, a slightly different version. He appeared in front of a thousand monks. They're very advanced, by the way with a flower. And he twirled the flower. Only one in the very back got up and laughed and bowed and thanked you very much and went off. Only one. So you missed the absolute teaching here in the ringing of the gong, but you got a very valuable relative teaching. This is why we need a spiritual path. In the absolute sense, nobody needs a spiritual path. It's right here. Right now, right here the ringing of the gong. Did anybody hear that dog barking earlier while we were meditating? One description, a beautiful description I read of a uh, from a Buddhist, a uh, Tibetan Buddhist. Yes, this was a a guy who'd been very advanced. He'd been studying uh, for years and years. He's an advanced scholar, advanced meditations. He'd gone on retreats. And one day his master called him out. It was at night outside the monastery. And I forgot what his name was, but let's call him Jamgan. He says, Jamgan, come out here. He says, they tell me you haven't... Uh, realized Buddha minds yet and the guy says no I haven't he says well that's silly sit down here with me he, sits down. he says now, you see the stars there and he says yeah he says you hear the temple bells going right yeah you hear the dogs barking yeah that's it <laughs> and then he says and then suddenly all entanglements dropped away and da 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 da, da. there's nothing special in that sense it's always just below the surface In fact, that's even too far. It's not there. It's closer than that. Closer than that. But, since we don't get it, well, then we start looking for it. That's how a spiritual path is born. However you go about it, whatever investigations you make, you know, you start to investigate, you realize your mind's very distracted, you think, oh, well, she better settle my mind so you spend some time meditating this and that. You start realizing the causes of your suffering as selfish behavior, so you adopt precepts and, and start practicing that. All the spiritual path grows organically out of our very perception of the obstacles that stand in our way of seeing what is absolutely present right now. So, on one hand, yes, no spiritual path in principle, in theory, is necessary. As a practical matter... You just have a demonstration of why it's necessary. No problem with that. Don't be confused about it. (laughs) Finally, let me leave you with these words from Jesus. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And for him who knocks, the door is opened. Enlightenment gnosis is not the result of some cause, so it cannot be predicted in the sense that you can predict, uh, I don't know, that water is going to boil at a certain temperature, so you can go out and put the fire under the water and at a certain temperature it will boil. It's much closer to uh, quantum mechanics, where there's a probability. Certain states, uh, certain stages of path, uh, certain life situations, the probability gets higher, but it's always a spontaneous event or in some traditions described as an act of grace and yet having said that there's truth in jesus's words that in a certain sense if you seek if you knock it will eventually be open it's guaranteed you have to drop all time expectations a lot of people go on a spiritual path they knock you know once They knock again, well, this doesn't work, and they go try something else. Jesus didn't say anything in here about seek and you shall find within one year. A knock and the door will be opened to you after three knocks. But he did say if you keep looking, if you keep seeking, if you keep knocking, you will find, and that is true. So, does anybody have any questions? Comments to make? Yes?
0: I have a hard time I don't know if it's grasping or accepting the premise that you put forth um, that if we get to a, a certain state, then the universe will vanish poof because it's simply a perception and, and it's not a reality. It seems that, and that would be based on my limited mind, that it's easier to accept, perhaps, that you could say the limitations of this universe, or this misperception, would banish. Because if, if we're not interrelating and interacting with what we have here and now, it seems as though there, there isn't any any kind of um, motivation or anything driving us, or pushing us, to try to change to even get to the point where the universe would poof vanish. So I don't know if that's if that's kind of an analogy, or if that's if that's a, something that that people are describing as actually happened. And I don't mean in the real sense that we're just not here anymore, but that's,
1: that's right. For me. It seems to me there are two aspects to your question. First has to do with motivation, and it is at least was true in my case. The motivation to go on a spiritual path. In fact, the motivation for everything in life was always present suffering. Mm-hmm. So, suffering in the moment. Uh, then the motivation was to move on to the next moment, which would be less suffering or no suffering, or a motivation where I was in some place where there was no suffering, even some some joy or whatever. But then the motivation is to avoid future suffering, to try to hold on to that. So suffering is always in there as a motive, you know, mixed in. And in that sense, it's just a matter of I don't know fact, as far as I can see, everybody's motivated by suffering. Some people, it's interesting, then say, well, gee, when they stop to think about it, if there's an end to suffering, what would motivate me? What would motivate anybody? Why would anybody pick up the garbage, you know? And all I can answer is what I tried to describe before, that there are ways of being in the world, which I think we've all had a little taste of at some time in our life, where the motivation is not to end suffering. It's just because you're happy. You just feel like expressing your happiness in some way. So if you want to put it in terms of a motivation, you could say that's the difference between motivation under delusion and enlightened motivation. In terms of this business of the world vanishing, another analogy that's very common in mystical traditions, and it's a good one, have you ever become lucid in a dream that you know you were dreaming?
0: Probably.
1: Hmm. Well, you've woken up from dreams and realized that in the dream you thought you were... In some situation, you wake up and you say, oh, it's just a dream. Okay, it's, it's, it's closer if we think of becoming lucid, but let's just stick with waking up. In a dream, let's say you're being chased by some um, mad killer, right? Uh, he's coming at you with a machete, and you're trying to run away, and you're ducking in uh, various alleys and you know, running up various streets and hiding in sewers, and he's coming after you and so forth. In the dream, the dream, first of all, seems very real. You seem to be one person. There seem to be other people around you, right? And there seems to be a whole environment and there seems to be buildings and streets and, and things like that, right? And you think in the dream the solution to your suffering is to get away from this madman somehow, to get safe, right? And to extend the analogy, if you're having a recurrent nightmare like this, you realize after a while that no matter what you do in your dream, even if you kill the boogeyman in one dream, he'll come back on another dream, if it's a recurrent dream. There is no solution within the context of that world. The true solution is to wake up. And you wake up, and the suffering caused in that environment ends, right? Not because you got rid of the boogeyman in a sense you killed him or you got away from him, but because you realized it was just a dream. Now, supposing if you can imagine becoming lucid in the dream, that means waking up in the dream and knowing that you are dreaming. So nothing actually vanishes. The streets are still the same, but you know that it is a dream. That's what it means that the world vanishes. When you become lucid in a dream, what has vanished is the perception that this is an objective world. What replaces it is the recognition, the realization that all this is created by consciousness. That even, in a certain sense, the boogeyman and the trees and the streets and the alleys are all you. Do you see what I mean? So, when mystics talk about the world vanishing, it's not appearances vanishing. Like, you know, the clock disappears... But it is the mistaking the dream of the clock for a reality that vanishes. And so in that sense, that world that you lived in, that caused you so much fear and terror, is gone. Now you're in a world of pure consciousness. In that world, the boogeyman may still kill you, but so what? It's just a dream. When you know it's a dream, you're not afraid of what's going to happen there. You see?
0: Yeah, I do. And and just to end that then, it seems to me that somehow you you gain the ability to get to that place, but that you can't stay there, but now you know how to get there. And and so when I say it's easier to think about limitations, you maybe somehow are able to remove those limitations, but that you would probably return to that place and have to continually do that. I guess Mm. that's how I I see it. Okay,
1: I think I see where the problem is. There's an assumption in here that that you get to this place, right? And then you can't stay there, so you fall back, and then you go back. The place of Gnosis is you get to the place, and in that place you see there's no one to get there. And there's no one to, to fall out of, and there's no one to go anywhere. So there's no coming or going. There's no abiding, or, or you see what I mean? Or let me put it this way. Better to say there's coming and going, but there's no one coming and going. That is the realization. There is no one. The very one that you're thinking of in your mind that comes and arrives here, and that may have more limits or less limits. It's not a question of limits, more or less limits. It's who's having those limits. There is no one in there to have the limits. There is no one to have arrived, actually. Gnosis is retroactive. (laughs) Uh, You you look back and you say, oh my God, no one was traveling this path in the first place. How wild. (laughs) Do you see what I mean?
0: Conceptually.
1: Well, this is the point. This is why it's not a dogma, it's not a theology, it's not a philosophy that you can teach somebody and then they know it. It helps to have some, some conceptual knowledge of what mystics are talking about, otherwise it's totally bananas, But truly speaking, all those teachings are really trying to point you back to your own experience, your own authority, your own investigation. You see? So keep knocking on that door and you see what you find. What we all say is you won't find anything there. That's the big cosmic joke. But you have to go knock for yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, we went on a longer time than usual this morning. Why don't we at least bring the formal part of the morning to a close? I think we do have some goodies out there, and I know some of you have been waiting here thinking, oh, if only that guy would shut up and I could get out there and get those goodies, (laughs) then I'd be happy. (laughs) So now you can test that and see if it makes you ultimately happy. And uh, have a good uh, summer break, and we'll see most of you again in the fall, I hope. Until then, peace to you all. Thank you, Joel. Happy birthday.